Hello, and welcome to Undercommon Taste, a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. This is a podcast where we stir the pot and lick the spoon. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm here with my co-host James Daly. Today, we are going to be working on the class for our second homebrew showcase character. Last episode, we went over the race, so it's going to be a kobold. And today, we're going to be going over the rogue class, specifically the thief archetype for the rogue class. I'm really excited about having a kobold rogue in here. I am really looking forward to this episode because as we discussed things the week leading up to this, we both love the rogue. We like the thief, but we both kind of stand in opposite corners of how exactly this character should work. So I think there's going to be a lot of back and forth on this one. Yeah, we have very different ideas on what this class needs. So do we want to just dive straight in or... Yeah, let's go ahead and dive straight in, and we'll talk about things as we come up. Okay. Um, the Rogue, by and large, I think in 5e, is fairly well fleshed out. They've done a really good job putting it together. Obviously, the Rogue's going to be one of those, kind of like the headlining-type classes. Everyone's going to want to play a Rogue at some point, so it was very well built and fleshed out, not so much like some of the other classes we will deal with or have dealt with in the past. The Rogue is one of the stronger classes in 5e. They just set up with so much stuff. They get... To a point for the class, yes, but when you start getting the archetypes, they kind of leave some really large gaps. Yeah, that is a good point. The Rogue, as it's built in the player's handbook, the Rogue gets a lot of cool stuff but it is very general class-heavy as opposed to archetype-heavy. There's not a huge amount of specialization that you get for your archetypes. Which is horribly unfortunate. Yeah, so I think what we're going to be going over today is going to try and skew that a little bit away from the base class and a little bit more flavor into the archetypes going to go ahead and start off. D8 hit die, 8 plus con mod for starting hit points. Proficient with light armor, simple weapons, hand crossbows, long swords, rapiers, and short swords. And with thieves tools. Yeah, so light armor makes sense. Again, you're not going to want heavy armor. Typically, this is going to be kind of your sneaky sneak guy. This is going to be your hop in, hop out, your skirmish fighter, your light fighter. I like rogues. I really like the spell thief archetype a lot, personally. Your simple weapons, obviously, yeah, your hand crossbows make sense. You start looking at your long swords, rapiers. Those are for your, like, washbuckler archetype, which I'm surprised was not one of your ones that you find in the player's handbook to start with. Going back, this is kind of like your roguish type character. Your light weapons, you're not going in there with a giant battle axe or kind of going in for some light damage. This is going to be your blend in, do some quiet, sneaky damage type fighter. So, yeah, I mean, these all make sense. Your thief tools, of course, honestly surprised that there's not more tools available. But so far, everything seems to line up okay. Saving throws, you get dexterity and intelligence. Both of those make sense to me. Dexterity, obviously, for the obvious. Intelligence, you're not going to really have a whole lot of intelligence saving throws, but it makes sense that they get intelligence from the start. Yeah, it does. If you look at older editions of the Rogue, like in Advanced D&D in 3 and 3.5, really, your wizard was always your one that you really stacked your intelligence on. But your Rogue was right there, maybe a close number two. Particularly, like I said, in the older editions, your skills and your skill points was based off of your intelligence score. You'd have your set thing plus your intelligence score. And the Rogues were supposed to be kind of jack-of-all-trades. So, you know, you kind of wanted that quick-thinking rogue. He wasn't just a nimble acrobat. He was clever, or she was clever, you know? So, intelligence, you have a good bit of street smarts. You know how to maybe negotiate the back ways. You maybe knew some black market contacts, so you had some, you know, acumen in there as far as the markets. You knew your ways in and out. You use the old movie trope, Bond would be a great example of a rogue in this case. Kind of using his intellect to get in and out of places. Dexterity in a pinch, but really, he was bashing the brain cells together and making a spark, and that's how he got out of most of his problems. You could argue that this should be wisdom and not intelligence, because this is more of a street smart versus book smart sort of deal. Being aware of your surroundings, being aware of your situation. Potentially, yeah. I've always seen wisdom kind of like 
Yeah, like you said, like your situational awareness. And that would be, again, using a movie trope, that'd be like a very Jason Bourne type thing. Now, the rogue does end up getting proficiency with wisdom saving throws later on, I think at level 15. But I think that's a little bit late. I don't know what we could swap around to make it happen earlier. And I don't know as if it would really be right for the balance to do it earlier. I think it would throw the balance of gameplay off a whole lot to have them with... Three saving throws, yeah. Well, not just three saving throws, but with dex and wisdom saving throws specifically at yeah, an earlier level. fairly impervious to spells at that point. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. The biggest saving throw chunk is for con saves, but combining dex and wisdom, the two of them together are a huge number of saving throws, especially for higher level, higher damage spells. Everything that does AoE damage that you can save for half damage, almost all of those are deck saves. And all of the illusions and charms, those are all wisdom saving throws. So giving them, especially with some of their other class abilities, giving them proficiency with wisdom earlier might actually throw the balance off. So that's why I'm okay with leaving intelligence as one of the starting saving throws, because I think having decks and whiz early on is going to really throw off the balance of the class. I agree. That makes perfect sense. As far as that much with the road goes, we are still in agreement, so we're still doing okay right now. All right, for proficient skills, you get to choose four skills from acrobatics, athletics, deception, insight, intimidation, investigation, perception, performance, persuasion, sleight of hand, and stealth. The rogue is one of your skill junkie classes. The rogue and the bard. And like I said before, earlier editions, this was actually very much dependent on your intelligence score, your intelligence modifier. So your rogues were some of your more generally intelligent or had the higher intelligence scores of your party members. In third edition, your skill points, the rogue got eight plus your intelligence modifier skill points every time they leveled up. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it's so insane. A lot of these make sense. Obviously, your acrobatics, your athletics, those are going to be your dexterity. So if you have your juggler, your acrobat, things like that. Deception, insight, that's great. If you're going to go in and kind of look for things, if you're casing a place, if you're trying to steal information, if you've got more of a spy type rogue, these are really good to do. Investigation still ties in with this insight, so it's kind of your ability to go in and look. Investigation is also the one that you use when you are specifically looking for something. If you're looking for traps, you're searching a designated area looking for traps, you're going to be making an investigation check. If you know that there's something in a room, you're going to make an investigation check to try and find it. Your intimidation, it kind of makes sense with the rogue. I know a guy who knows a guy that's kind of like your mafiosa dude or your Don, you know. It's not my favorite one on this one, but not bad. I think that intimidation is going to be one of those ones that doesn't get picked very often because there are enough other skills in this list that your four skills are going to get taken up pretty quickly. Again, your perception, that's going to be your situational awareness. You're going to hear someone sneaking up on you or see someone hiding behind a barrel or something like that. Performance, why not? It depends on how you play. Performance is also going to be really good if you are doing a spy type because then you get to have your disguise kit. You throw on a disguise and then you're pretending to be someone who's supposed to be there. That's a performance check. I can see that. I would file that more under persuasion personally. Now, performance is impersonating someone else if you knock out a guard and dress up in his uniform and you're walking around pretending to be a guard that is a performance check sir yeah i see that and i do agree with that that does make sense my brain's always kind of put that persuasion as you're trying to persuade the people otherwise it would be more (laughs) likely to be deception than persuasion Slide a hand, so if you're going to pilfer some stuff if you're going to steal some documents if you're going to pickpocket that kind of thing slide a hand's great And of course, I mean, almost every rogue, stealth is almost a gimme. If you want to do any kind of sneaking, you're going to be proficient in stealth. There's one skill that was in 4th edition that I really wish had survived the transition into 5th edition called Streetwise. That I really would have liked to see because that would be a wonderful skill to have. That is your I know a guy skill. That would be a good skill. Now, I never played 4th edition. Like I said, I kind of came in late. 
fourth edition was out, but the people I played with at the time were very much into three and three five. Four got a really bad rap. Four was not received terribly well. So I went from three three five straight to five. Almost so. everything that I know about fourth edition I picked up from the Thursday Nights podcast. It was my first D and D podcast that I started listening to and they were playing fourth edition and they went I think they went like a hundred and forty some odd episodes. They started the podcast when they were all at level ten, I think it was. And they went through an epic level, so went up to I think level thirty. But the Thursday nights podcast is where I managed to pick up most of what I know about 4th edition, just listening to them play. And there are a number of things from 4th edition that I really liked that I wish were still in the game. Minion rules, some of the skill checks. So, like I said, the streetwise check. Streetwise check just, it was such a niche thing, but it was something that was, you knew what it was. And that makes sense. And I've played, I know a lot of, particularly around third edition, there was a lot of people wanting to do kind of an urban setting to the game. So yeah, Streetwise would actually be kind of a cool skill. And maybe that's something we need to kind of revisit, try to homebrew and bring back if possible at some point. Yeah, we could talk about that. Not right now, obviously. But that would be something that would require a change to the character sheet because that unlike in third edition where you had blank spots at the bottom where you could write in new skills that weren't on the list which was crazy because that was a huge list that was a huge list but the fifth edition character sheet doesn't have that okay so let's go ahead and get into the actual class mechanic stuff starting at first level you get two three abilities you get expertise which lets you pick two skills or your thief's tools and a skill, and you get to double your proficiency bonus with those skills. And you get to use it on two more skills starting at level six. We were talking about this. I like this one. Now, getting it twice, I'll agree with Ian, is a bit much. It really is. I mean, eventually getting a plus 12 base on four individual skills... Or on three skills and your thieves tools, that just seems like a really big deal. That is a lot, but your rogues are really your skill workhorses because they're doing your investigations, they're looking for your traps. They have to have stealth, so I mean, stealth's almost always a give me on one of those. And then your thief tools, but there's your four right there, and that really doesn't. I don't know. It, it sounds like a lot, but then what else are you expecting your rogue to do? Are they going to be doing persuasion? Are they going to be performance checks? How is that rogue playing? So I kind of, I don't know, I'm of two minds on this one. It does sound like a lot, but again, that rogue's going to fill a lot of roles in a party. What I would suggest is that once we get to the sixth level expertise, you get expertise with one additional skill, and you can choose one of your other skills that you have expertise in and can change that to a different skill. That's a lot of bookkeeping, but otherwise I'm inclined to agree it's really not that much bookkeeping is you hit level six. Okay, I'm going to pick up this third skill. And it turns out that I'm using this skill that I don't have expertise in a whole lot more than this skill that I do. So I'm just going to swap that over. It really comes down to how messy are your character sheets at this point. Because if you're crossing stuff out and adding stuff in, if you're writing in pen because you're that brave with your character sheet, or if you've got a really crappy eraser, which happens more often than you care to admit... That's a thing, so maybe you have to do a clean character sheet at 6th level, I don't know. I think that works. And this too, also, roleplay-wise, will give the character a chance to grow. You know, I was really good at this, and I realized the party didn't need it, so maybe come up with a good RP reason to change your proficiency bonus. Well, I'm doing this instead, or maybe I found a trainer and he taught me how to do this instead of this. And that's really good for the player to do. The DM can kind of prompt the players to try to do that as well. And again, that adds a lot more flavor into the game. So are we going to change it? Yeah, I say let's go ahead and change it. If for no other reason than to just see how it plays? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if it doesn't play well, we can always change it back if we want to, or the players can change it back. But anything that's going to promote roleplay, or the players thinking about their characters and how they interact, I think is a great thing for the game. So I think that's an opportunity for the players to grow, so I say we throw it in. I think you really hit the nail on the head there with it gives you an opportunity to have your character grow and mature because the things that you were good at when you were 18 and you graduated high school are going to be vastly different than the things that you're good at, potentially going to be vastly different than the things that you're good at when you're 25 
and you've that's been, something old people say <laughs> or you know 35 or 50 yeah and that's very true and like we were discussing this gives a chance for the players to think about their character and what their characters are doing and those of you that watch movies those of you who like to read you know just that single faceted character that's always the same it's hardly ever anybody's favorite characters people's favorite characters tend to be the ones that kind of grow and change over time I'm going to use myself for an example here. When I was 18 and I graduated high school, I was a farm boy. I grew up on a goat farm and I was going to college to be a computer programmer. And then by the time I was 25, I had a degree in history. I had worked in a restaurant as a short order cook. I had worked as a gardener at a country club and I had just finished going back to school to get a welding degree. I was a completely different person at 25 than I was at 18 with a completely different skill set. And this would allow you to portray something like that. Yeah, and I like that. That makes things really good. So, yeah, let's definitely keep that. And like I said, if it's too clunky later on or people have an issue with it, we can always go back and adjust it. But that's the great thing about homebrew is the rules are not set in stone. They're set in silly putty at best. All right, so moving on. The next one is sneak attack. Starting at first level, once per turn you get an extra 1d6 damage to one creature you hit with an attack. If you have advantage on the roll, or if an enemy of that target, ostensibly one of your allies, is within five feet of that creature, that ally of yours isn't incapacitated and you don't have disadvantage. It's a very wordy way of putting it, but basically if you have somebody else for the target to focus on and you don't have disadvantage, then you get to sneak attack. Now, is that from the book? Because Roll20.net has a different... That is from the player's handbook. Okay, excellent. Because again, Roll20.net actually has a different... They don't have the uh, flanking information on there, which is different. But this generally is the rogue's bread and butter. This right here is why most people want to roll a rogue. Particularly as you get to the higher levels, that's where you start throwing a brick of dice on the table. Yeah, because... It's a lot of fun. It's kind of exciting. Because every second level, it goes up by 1d6. By the end of everything, it's a 10d6 sneak attack. Now, per Roll20.net, and again, we can double-check the player's handbook for this one, the attack must use finesse and or a ranged weapon. Yes. So you can't, you can't get a sneak attack with a giant warhammer or a battle axe or anything like that. Or even a longsword. So yeah, so there are some slight rules to sneak attack. Again, you have to have advantage on the attack roll, so it's not everything. It used to be you had to be in stealth, but that's changed over different editions. But this right here is the rogue's bread and butter. This is why everybody wants to roll the rogue. I've got no issue with this at all. Me neither. We're not going to touch sneak attack. Sneak attack is a wonderful mechanic. I love it. We're just going to leave it alone. All right, the other thing that you get at first level is Thieves' Cant, which is... Sure they can. Oh, wait. Never mind. What? <laughs> you said Thieves' Cant. I said, of course they can. There's no apostrophe in Cant. <laughs> And it's your way of using dialect jargon and code to communicate with other thieves, often in a way that someone who doesn't speak thieves can't won't realize that you're speaking in code. Dale Kingsmill has a wonderful video on Thieves Can't on her YouTube channel. Monarch's Factory, I think, is the name of the channel. It's one of her more popular videos, and she does just an amazing job of going through different ways to use Thieves Can't, because it's not like it's a new language. It counts as a language proficiency, but it's a pseudo-language. It's using turns of phrase that you can weave into a conversation and it sounds completely innocuous to anyone who doesn't know what they're looking for, but someone else who knows will pick up on it as being part of the code and will be able to respond to you with an appropriate response to the code. This is a really good opportunity for roleplay. If you've got more than one rogue within the party, or if you've got something between the rogue and the DM, this is kind of interesting. I have not seen the video that Ian's referencing. I should probably go look that up. When I read this, I think of two things. I think of one in the uh, David Edding series, the Belgarid and the, uh, I think the second was the Belgarian, but the thief rogue character in the book, Silk, who's one of my favorite literary characters ever, the spies and the thieves, they use basically a sort of sign language and he teaches it to a couple of the characters. And, and at different points, like if they're in a jam or something, they're communicating the sign language without people being able to take notice. 
I kind of see that. Um, a real world example is a fascination of mine when I was younger used to be like the hobo language or the hobo signs right. I was that about you can to, find in different cities. I was about to bring that up. But yeah, that kind of pulls in perfect. So, you know, you might see a little chalk drawing or something or a sign being twisted a certain way and it's a symbol for different things. Again, I get to work at a museum. A lot of it is Appalachian history. And one of the neat things I get to teach my students is with quilting, they would do things like this with the Underground Railroad. They would actually patch certain symbols in on the quilts to let people know if it was a time to run away, if there were bounty hunters in the area, if there was a supply drop nearby. So these are all kind of thieves can't type things. So things like this have a real world correlation. So this is kind of fun. It's a little niche, but still a great opportunity for roleplay. This will also be one of those things that will allow the player and the DM both to express as little or as much in-depth application as they want. The two of them can sit down and work out a complete list of jargon that the two of them can reference and bounce back and forth so that whenever the rogue player is speaking with NPCs, they can actually engage one another in Thieves' Cant. Or they can just say, I have a conversation with this NPC and I'm going to use my Thieves' Cant to convey this message. And again, this is all, depending on how much you want to do this, can actually help grow your characters, not just on the table, but the actual player themselves so they are more comfortable with actual role-playing. Right, so the next thing on the list is Cunning Action. Cunning Action lets you use your bonus action to take the dash, disengage, or hide action. This really helps the rogue a lot with their mobility, because the rogue is squishier than most of your other melee combatants, so the rogue needs to be able to get in, hit, and get out. Or if they're using a ranged weapon, they need to be able to get away from the melee characters that are trying to come and eat their face. And this is really clutch when you start thinking about attacks of opportunity. Because if you go in and attack a character or a mob, and then you step out of that combat square, that's going to provoke an attack of opportunity without disengage. Disengage basically gives him a freebie so he can step in and step out. Your rug would be just a big old squishy pile of pulp otherwise. I'd see no reason to mess with cunning action. I really like it. It plays into the archetypical rogue of being nimble, of being shifty, being able to duck in and out. Yeah, I like this one too. I've got no issue with this one at all. So, moving on, starting at level 3, we get into our roguish archetype. We're going to come back to this in a little bit. We're going to be going through the thief archetype on this particular rogue. Starting at 4th level, you get your ability score improvement, your ASI. One thing that I didn't realize until I was preparing for this episode is that rogues actually get one extra ASI. They get one at 10th level that I missed before. That they do. I was just looking at that myself. Because standard is 4, 8, 12, 16, 19, and the rogue gets an extra one at 10. It's not like the fighter who gets two extras, but this also plays into the whole, they're your skills monkey. Right, they're your skills monkey. Probably going to want to drop at least one of those into a feat versus your actual ability scores. You're also going to want to max out your decks. Absolutely. You're going to want to get pretty high on your intelligence and wisdom, because that's going to be your investigation and perception checks and depending on how you're playing your character you probably want your charisma up there as well nobody wants a con dump stat and just based on what you can actually use your sneak attack on you can get away with not having a large strength score with a rogue because you're going to be using finesse weapons primarily so you're going right. to take advantage of your dex score with your attacks and Dex is also going to help you with your AC because you only have proficiency with light armors. So you're going to be able to use your full Dex mod with your AC. So once you get a decent armor, you're going to have that plus five on top of it from your 20 Dex. And that's the thing is when you look at the Rogue, the Rogue really is going to be generally your most well-rounded character, your most well-rounded player. Because again, there are so many roles the Rogue can fill. Right behind the rogue is going to be the bard, particularly in 5e. The bard in older versions was kind of clunky, but very much very useful in 5e. So those extra ability scores kind of come in handy. So those extra two points are an extra feat. I'm okay with that because, again, it's really hard to figure out what exactly or how exactly your rogue is going to be playing. 
And I mean, like you're saying, there are so many different ways that you can play them. You know, you can play them as a thrown weapon character. You can play them as a short sword and dagger or a rapier and dagger player. You can play them as range, so hand crossbows or longbows or any number of things. Well, I mean, you start getting into spell thieves and now you're throwing spells around too. Arcane Trickster is... Arcane Trickster, yes, that's what it is. Spell Thief is an old Elder Scroll build I used to run with. Continuing on, next one at 5th level, you get Uncanny Dodge. Starting at 5th level, when an attacker that you can see hits you with an attack, you can use your reaction to have the attack's damage against you. So, levels 1 through 4, we are in complete agreement. We love the rogue, we love everything about it. Fifth level, the honeymoon's over. This, this is where we start seeing kind of different ways to roll things out. This is where we start disagreeing. James, well, I'm going to let you go ahead and give your opinion on it. I don't want to tell people what your opinion is on this. No, that's fine. I want to kind of make this a coin flip of some sort. Like I said, if it could be like a 50-50, I think getting resistance automatically is a bit much. I kind of want to say either like, generally, if I come to a coin flip in the games I run, I tell my players to pick high or low or odd or even, and I roll a d20. So if they pick right, they get the effect. Another thing I would do is if you wanted to use your uncanny dodge, because you're dodging something, I would say that the character would have to re-roll the attack roll. So it's kind of like giving them disadvantage on the one roll to a point. And that feels okay to me. Because again, if someone's swinging at you and you're dodging out of the way, it's whether or not they can hit you or not. So to me, thematically, that feels correct. Where Ian thinks... So the issue that I have with Uncanny Dodge right now is that when you're getting it, and for the entire rest of the game, you're going to be going up against a lot of things that have multiple attacks per round. And you're only going to get to have the damage for one attack per round. So, yes, you can do that every single round, but you can still only do that for one attack, and you have to decide, I'm going to do this on this attack, because this attack seems like it's hitting me pretty hard, but then you get around to the next enemy that attacks you, and they get a crit on you, and you've already spent it, and you don't get to reduce that crit. Well, you're not dodging everything. Right, but I am of the opinion that Uncanny Dodge should be something that functions somewhat similarly to the shield spell, where when you get hit, you can use your reaction to use your Uncanny Dodge, and you get a bonus to your AC. I'm thinking add your proficiency bonus to your AC until the start of your next turn. So it would function the same way as the shield spell without the ability to block magic missiles. So you know what I want to say? If you want to roll a wizard spell, you need to roll a wizard. This isn't a wizard spell, because it's not going to use a spell slot. You can only use it... I would put a limiter that you could only use it once per short rest. Maybe the way the shield spell is worded by wizards is super clunky. I don't really like it. I do like the effect of it. It's nice. The way it's worded is terrible. Being able to do this once per rest versus once per combat or once per round? Well, I mean, once per short rest is effectively once per combat. Once per combat, yeah, but this would be once per round as written. And again, we do both agree this is a little a little heavy-handed as written. It's a little beefy. No, I'm saying that it's underwhelming. You think it's actually underwhelming, then yes. you would definitely want it per round and not per no, combat. No, 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 no. I don't want them to be able to just, I get hit, so I'm going to add my proficiency bonus to my AC every single round. That's how this is worded. Now you no, will not mean not without the AC, the, but the this way- could trigger every round. Yes, but you can only use it on one hit per round. So that means if you get hit seven times, you only get to have one of those hits. Right, because you're only dodging one hit. (laughs) So this is is one we kind of go back and forth on. And again, we talked about also another thing we talked about was maybe throwing your dex modifier in. But as Ian brought up... You've already got it. You've pretty much already got it. And if you're maxed out at 20, that's a plus five versus a plus six at max proficiency bonus. And this would give you a smaller AC bonus at earlier levels that would gradually grow as you gained levels. So at the point that you're getting it, it would be a plus three to your AC. Right. And And I do like skills that go with the character. And that, if anything could sell me, it would be that. The other thing I brought up with Ian when we were discussing this is it also depends a lot on the DM. So if the DM's really quick on throwing his dice and then you're saying, well, I'm going to pop my uncanny dodge the DM better remember what that dice roll was because now he's got to re-add to see if that hits or not. 
that can be a problem. And depending on who's playing, if people are combative between the characters and the DM, the DM's a super stickler, you know, we've all been on that table where everyone's kind of high strung and everybody's already on edge. You hope that doesn't happen, but sometimes it does. So I could see this being a problem in some games, depending. But the counter that I would put to your argument is the role that the DM is making doesn't change. It is a number that does not change. It doesn't matter if they're using their uncanny dodge or not. That role doesn't change. And what you have is you have the player who knows that, okay, I got hit. If I use my uncanny dodge, it's going to miss. So I'm going to use my uncanny dodge, and now this attack misses, and now I have a higher AC that every roll that the DM makes from now on has to hit. Until my turn starts up again. I can see that, and that would be once per combat, or once per once short per rest. Once per short rest. I can see that. Uh, like I said, I think it still and feels a little clunky, but I think we can roll with it. It's basically, you're going into bob and weave. There's an old video, I'm wanting to say it's a Muhammad Ali fight. And he's in the ring, and the guy that he's fighting comes in, and over the course of five seconds, throws something like 13 punches at him. And you just watch him move out of the way of every single one. That's what I'm picturing here. I can see that. And, I mean, that's that does create a, a wonderful visual, which I like. And so that would work. That almost becomes... I forget what the spell is in WoW, but the rogues have that, where they can Evasion. basically become... What? Evasion. Is it evasion in WoW for the rogues that have that? Where they basically become untouchable more or less for like 15 seconds or something like that. So yeah, I can see that. And while I really, personally, I like things becoming a bit more chance involved, a bit more random. I try to invoke the fates whenever I can. I'd like to see just the attack automatically become an attack with disadvantage if you chose to use your uncanny dodge. But we'll go ahead and roll with the uh, AC bonus for now. Yeah, because the other thing that you were advocating with the coin flip, the high-low... Would that have been still leaving it one attack per round? Yes. Yeah, so that would have been a really hard sell for me because I already think that it's underwhelming and now you're trying to neuter it further. Because like I said, to me this feels like a lot. And again, this is where we start splitting on the rogue. So, And the other way that you're wanting to do it where you're using your reaction to impose disadvantage on an attack that would hit you is you're still ending up, at the end of the day, at roughly the same difference with the penalty or the bonus, except that now you're giving the attacker an, on average, minus five, because that's what disadvantage averages out to, is a minus five on the roll. Yeah, that's true. And again, that comes to more of my, I'll try to invoke the fates and kind of make things random. If you can say, hey, you can roll a die for this, I'll almost always be like, hey, let's roll more dice. <laughs> I like to roll dice too, but what I'm proposing is going to be the... It has the fewest moving parts. I'll grant you that, yes. We'll try my way, and if it doesn't work, then we'll try your way. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, next is evasion. And evasion is one of those that... This is the ability, James and I were talking earlier, that in 3rd edition was called Uncanny Dodge. Right, um, and again... This one's our bread and butter for the rogue. So, if there's ever a rogue meme, it's backstab and it's evasion. So whenever you have to make a dex save for half damage, you take no damage on a successful save and half damage on a failed save. So again, you've learned to duck and cover. You saw that flash of light, you ducked under your desk. You only take half radiation damage now. You put your head between your legs and you kiss your bum goodbye. <laughs> this is a classic ability it has persisted through the editions, effectively unchanged. I'm not going to touch it. No, we are not going to summon the Inquisitors by committing this heresy. <laughs> <laughs> Evasion is just so well-structured. It really does feel right for the rogue, because their whole thing is being nimble and getting out of the way. They don't rely on armor to keep them safe. They rely on not being where the attack is to keep them safe. So we're going to leave Evasion alone. That sounds like a good idea. Next is, at 11th level, Reliable Talent. So whenever you make an ability check that lets you add your proficiency bonus, you can treat a d20 roll of 9 or lower as a 10. I think This that, sounds way, way too much. Yeah, that's exactly where I was about to go. I think that this is way overpowered, and I think that this should work on expertise skills. 
So on skills that you have expertise in, if you roll a 9 or lower, you can count it as a 10. You can take 10 on anything that you have expertise in. I would even go further and say you could pick one, maybe two skills that you have expertise in. Because again, you're getting a bunch of skills. We said you'd get three and you can change one later. But pick one skill where you'd have a reliable talent in that one skill. Because, I mean, guaranteeing at least a 10, and then you throw your expertise on that, which you've now doubled because of your expertise. So you get a 10, and now at level 11, your your proficiency bonus is going to be, what, a plus 4 at level 11? You see here, you have it's a plus 2 at 1, a plus 3 at 5, a plus 4 at 9. So yeah, it's going to be plus 4. So plus four, so now that's plus eight. That means the lowest you're going to roll with reliable talent is 18. That's insane. That should be one skill. You pick one. You'll get one cookie. I'm going to push back on that. I'm going to stand my ground and say that I think that it should be everything that you have expertise in. Because expertise, you are an expert in this skill. That means that you are reliably good with these skills. And a rogue is going to be... If you have expertise in stealth, you're going to be good at moving around undetected. If your expertise is in sleight of hand, you're going to be good at picking pockets. If your expertise is in thieves' tools, you're going to be good at opening locks and disabling traps. They're all tools that are used in the trade, and if you're good enough to be considered an expert in all of these skills, I think that you should be able to reliably use those skills without the risk of failure that you would get for something that you're not as good in. You make a fair point. And like I've already said a dozen times in this, it really does come down to the rogue is your workhorse. It's your jack of all trades. Want to split the difference on this and call this you pick two that you have expertise in? I'm really, because we're reducing the number of skills that you can take expertise in, I think that we should just leave it at, if you have expertise in it, you can use your reliable talent. That feels broken to me, but we can roll with it. But It isn't everything that you're proficient in. I want to drive that home because as it is right now, you would get your four skills or your three skills and your thieves tools that you get for being a rogue, plus one or two additional skills that you can pick up from your background. So you can potentially have six skills that you can take ten on as it is in the PHB. So I'm reducing that to the ones that you have expertise in. That ah. is that is the argument that I'm making. And you make a good argument. It just still sounds like a lot. Three skills that no matter what, you're going to roll at least an 18 on sounds like a lot. But again, we, we'll play test it. We'll see how it works. And actually, it's going to be more than that because you're adding your ability score modifier to it. You're right. That just sounds like a lot. And again, we're at level 11. Your rogue's going to be... Yeah, but, you know, the thing is, if you have expertise with your thieves' tools, you shouldn't be thwarted by a simple lock. By a simple lock, no, but, I mean, you're pretty much guaranteed a DC-20 check any roll. But the thing is, if you roll a 2... You're still going to wind up with, like, a 24. No, you're going to end up with a 9 plus your dex mod, so at level 11, let's say you have an 18, you're going to have a 13. And so if you have if it's a DC 15 lock, which is a pretty low DC lock, you will have failed to open it. No, because you'll double your bonus score. That's so at level 11. Yeah. 4 plus 4, 8. 8. Plus your roll of 2 is 10. Well, no, because you're, anything you roll that's under 10 is counted as a 10 or higher. So it's 8 plus 10. So there's 18 plus your dex mod. I'm saying without. Oh, without it, yeah. Without reliable talent. Without reliable talent, yes, I agree. So I'm, I'm saying that if we're doing it your way and we are limiting the number of skills, if you didn't take your thieves' tools as your reliable talent skill, you could roll a two and fail to open a simple lock. I think that if you're an expert in opening locks, that that is completely unfeasible. You, you know what? Sometimes Michael Phelps has a bad day and he has a cramp in the pool. And he doesn't break a world record. And you know what? Sometimes he doesn't even come in first place. Granted, it doesn't happen often, but every once in a while it happens. Yes, but this isn't <laughs> this isn't not coming in first place. This is Michael Phelps jumping into the pool and drowning. <laughs> Granted. Again, we can work with this one. It still sounds having three skills that you automatically roll a minimum of an 18 on. Sounds really heavy-handed to me. We can go with it. Like I said, we can always see if it's too much or not. We can nerf it further if we need to. 
it's always easier to take more away than it is to add things back in. Generally, yeah. Except for world building, you can do whatever you want. That's <laughs> Again, that's the magic of homebrew. This would be a great thing for the listeners to write into us. If you want to email, if you want to jabber us up on Twitter, really would like to think of what you guys think about this one. Do you think this one's heavy-handed? Do you think it's not strong enough? Send it, send us emails to tell us why I'm right. You can agree with me, <laughs> or you can be wrong like Ian. It's perfectly fine. Are we going to go with mine for now, and then if it still ends up being too much, go with yours? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so now that that's hashed out, Moving on to the level 14 skill, Blind Sense. Starting at level 14, if you are able to hear, you are aware of the location of any hidden or invisible creature within 10 feet of you. This is kind of fun. This is almost like Blind Fighting, which was a feat in Advanced D&D and 3rd Edition. It's not quite that, but I like this one. I do too, but whenever we take it in combination with the next one i'm gonna go ahead and read it off slippery mind at 15th level you have acquired greater mental strength you gain proficiency in wisdom saving throws it seems to me that these should be flipped i think that you should i think that if you're good enough to hear invisible people you should already have advantage on your wisdom saving throws Maybe. I don't know. I was actually going to say that, if anything, the blind sense should be given earlier. Again, it's that situational awareness. It's the blindfold snatching the pebble from my hand type thing. You can hear footsteps. You can hear breathing. Versus slippery mind, you know, mental fortitude, that self-control, you know, that whole wisdom thing. That's the uh, mastery over self in a lot of ways. To me, would take more mental training than blind sense would. I'm going to voice my unpopular opinion here. Again? Yeah, again, a lot of the spells in 5th edition that have wisdom saving throws in 3rd edition would have had charisma saving throws. And I think that they did a disservice by moving a lot of the mental fortitude spell saves from charisma to wisdom. I can agree with that, but think those two words are super important. Mental fortitude. Those are things that come with a certain amount of maturity, a certain amount of, well, dare I say, wisdom that's developed over time. Blind sense, you know, being able to hear your surroundings, that can be something trained via combat, trained in a gym, where that slippery mind having that self-awareness and that mental fortitude is something that would come from knowing yourself and meditation. That, to me, seems like the mark of a more mature person or a more mature character. I'm not trying to suggest that Blind Sense should be a charisma-based ability. I understand that my point was tangential to what we're discussing here, but there are a lot of spells in D&D 5e that have wisdom saving throws that the save is based on the strength of a person's will. Right. And that has always seemed to me to be a charisma thing. Your sense of self, your ability to assert yourself... Wisdom is your awareness of the physical world around you, utilizing your senses, but your charisma is your strength of mind, is your assertiveness, your tenacity. It's not just how pretty you are. No, well, I agree that charisma is not just how pretty you are. That sense of self and that tenacity I've always taken, because wisdom and will were always tied together. Back in Advanced D&D in 3.5, your wisdom saves were will saves versus a constitution save to me constitution is your your ability to convince somebody which in these you show that you generally have the better wisdom score because you generally convince me of things is that cult of personality that ability to draw people to you and that is charisma storytelling just that ability to step in that room that certain je ne sais quoi you know that i don't know what but people are drawn to you that to me has always been charisma your ability to orate to captivate a crowd those are all the outward expressions of charisma. but And I may be completely wrong here. It's been a long time since I've cracked open a 3.5 book. But I'm pretty sure that most of your charm spells in 3 and 3.5 were charisma saves and not wisdom saves. I am almost certain those were will saves. In fact, we can consult the oracles right now because we live in the magical age of the internet. Go ahead and prove me wrong. It's been a couple hours since I was proved wrong, so I need some humility. 3.5 D&D charm person, mind-affecting, bard, verbal somatic component, duration, saving throw, will negates. Okay. I don't think there was an actual charisma save in 3.5. It was will, dex, strength, 
and con. No, it was will, fort, and reflex. Yes, will, fort, and reflex. That is correct. So fort was con-based, reflex was dex-based, and will was wisdom-based. Correct. So yeah, I was wrong on that one. Oh well. <laughs> but yeah, to me, it would seem that having the awareness of the outside world would come before you truly have awareness of your inside world. And again, that's philosophy. And really, we could do a dozen episodes on the philosophy of D&D, and I'm sure we will at various points. Oh, I'm sure we will. So do you just want to leave these as they are then instead of flipping them around? Um, yeah, I think we will. I will admit that blind sense seems more like a monk ability than a rogue ability. I will grant you that. There is some overlap, though, because they are both kind of your light armored melee fighters. So the next skill on the list is Elusive. This is a super OP ability. In my yeah, this one feels really broken. Starting at 18th level, you're so evasive that attackers rarely gain the upper hand against you. No attack roll has advantage against you while you aren't incapacitated. No way. We can give them something else, but this needs to completely go. If anything, you could probably declare this once per rest, maybe? Well, what we could do is basically make it Uncanny Dodge version 2.0 and let them use it a second time per short rest, starting at 18th level. You know, like the fighter and action surge? Yeah, I could see that. That's actually a really good answer to that. And then the way you built up your Uncanny Dodge, those two would actually work better together with the armor class score because again at 18th level things are hitting you fast or hitting you a lot they're hitting you hard so that extra six armor for the entire round would, would definitely come in handy and instead of having it be a niche thing where it only affects them if they would have advantage it gives you a bonus that you can trigger that gives you a flat bonus for an entire turn I like that. And I mean, it's still going to use your reaction. That's still going to recharge at the start of your turn. Right. So yeah, I'm okay with that. I think that'll be an interesting way to go about it. And then the last one in the base rogue ability is Stroke of Luck. 20th level, you have an uncanny knack for succeeding when you need to. If your attack misses a target within range, you can turn the miss into a hit. Alternatively, if you fail on an ability check, you can treat the d20 roll as a 20. Once you use this feature, you can't use it again until you finish a short or long rest. I mean, as a capstone ability, this is one of the best in the game. Some of the other classes, the monk in particular, their capstone abilities are just trash. Now here's my question. With your stroke of luck, if you treat that d20 roll as a 20, does that mean basically you get an insta-crit? You don't get critical successes or critical failures on skill checks. That's why you can say, treat it as a 20. Because it doesn't matter if it's a 20, if you get a crit on a 20 or not, because it's a skill check. And that's why they say you can turn a miss into a hit instead of turn that into a 20, because then that would be a crit. Okay. As written, I'm okay with this. The one thing that I would suggest is make it recharge only on a long rest. I was thinking that too, actually. Yeah, once per long rest. Because um, it, it's luck, and you should never push your luck should always push your luck. So you can tell that Ian never plays a rogue. You should always push your luck. So yeah. Uh, I play clerics. I, I, I do enjoy playing a cleric too. And you play a great cleric. But a rogue, a rogue's about pushing his luck. That's what a rogue do. Yeah. All right. So yeah, stroke of luck. Keep it mostly as written. Just we're going to limit it to uh, once per long rest. Yeah, we're going to nix the short rest recharge. Okay. Now to archetype. Now to archetype. The thief archetype is going to be more of a cat burglar type person or a pickpocket footpad. This is not a combat-oriented archetype. I like this, really. Not every character is meant to bash faces, and you kind of need a well-rounded party. Not Sometimes you need information versus blood. But not to say that the thief is a slouch in combat, because they still get their sneak attack, they still get all of this other stuff, and they have an ability that gives them, basically gives you two turns on the first round of combat. So there are aspects to the thief that makes them quite powerful in combat, but they're not going to be the assassin. The assassin is the combat spec, and you're not going to get the numbers with a thief that you're going to get with an assassin, but you're going to have the utility with the thief that you're not going to have with the assassin. So let's go ahead and dive into this. Starting at third level, you get two abilities, fast hands and second story work. 
Fast hands, whenever you use your cunning action, you can make a sleight of hand check. Use your thieves tools to disarm a trap or open a lock or use an object. You can do all of those as a bonus action as opposed to an action. So this would actually allow you in the rules without using any homebrew to administer a potion as a bonus action, which would make the thief rogue the only class Aside from, I think, the Unearthed Arcana Artificer, I don't remember if it got left in whenever it got published, the Alchemist Artificer had basically healing drafts that they could pull from their bag and administer as an action. But uh, there I go. That was still an action. So the the Thief Rogue is the only person who can administer a potion as a bonus action. Yeah, this makes the thief really super handy. There's lots of things that are really neat. When you start getting to use your use object, if you, I believe that counts for wands and uh, scrolls too, I think. Yes. I'll have to double check that. So, I mean, your rogue hops in, you take a shot with your hand crossbow, you use your disengage action to step back, and then you pull out a scroll and you cast burning hands. I mean, that's a lot of you, stuff getting done in one round. So You wouldn't be able uh, again, to do that. You wouldn't be able to do that because that would be using your action to shoot, your bonus action to disengage, and now you don't have a bonus action. I thought evasion was your re- or your disengage was your reaction. No, that's part of your cunning action, which you use your bonus action to do. You can disengage as a bonus action as a rogue. Gotcha. These are additional things that are added to your cunning action. So now, as your cunning action, you have six things you can do. You can dash, disengage, hide, use an object, use your thieves tools, or perform a sleight of hand check. Again, this still gives you a lot of utility. This lets you do a lot of things in one turn. So I'm okay with this. And this lets you walk up and you use your action to pick someone's pocket. And then you can disengage as your bonus action and run away from them. If you have to get through hostels, you can use your action to disengage get through without provoking attacks, and then use your bonus action to unlock and open the door behind them so that the rest of your party can bull rush through and get out of a room that you've been locked into. There are a lot of instances where these few extra little things can really help in a pinch. Particularly when the party's already kind of battered up a bit. I really like this one as it's written. I do too. I'm thinking we're not going to mess with it. The second one, second story work, This is one that James and I disagreed on a little bit. When you choose this archetype at third level, you gain the ability to climb faster than normal. Climbing no longer costs you extra movement. So I believe that climbing counts as difficult terrain, so you can only climb at half your movement speed. I think that's the rule. I'm not certain. But this basically gives you a climb speed equal to your movement. So you get a climb speed of 30 feet. In addition, when you make a running jump, the distance you cover increases by a number of feet equal to your dex mod. This just sounds really boring to me. Unless you're doing like an urban campaign or you're an elf doing George of the Jungle, I don't see when this is going to get used a whole lot. This I, is kind of underwhelming. I will agree that it is niche, but it does provide a decent amount of utility. Again, depending on your game setting. If you're out more in open field, if you're on a steps or a plane or something like that, if you're in a cave, if you're in an actual dungeon, this doesn't really get a lot done for you. There are a lot of instances where you can use a climb speed in a dungeon. There I are... must have played the wrong games then, because I almost never use climb in hardly it, anything. What it is, is you've been playing in a bunch of dungeons that are just a bunch of blocks, a bunch of boxes set up in a flat plane. You've been playing in two-dimensional dungeons, is what I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got that, I got that. And you are probably correct. I'm suddenly reminded of this scene in Star Trek II, Khan's Wrath, where Spock realizes that Khan's only reacting everything in, in two dimensions, and that's how they beat him, because they go up. They cheated, they went up. <laughs> right. <laughs> that well may be the case. I've rarely seen or used the climb action, except for maybe a handful of times. So to me, this doesn't seem thrilling. So the scenario that I posited to you in our chat that you could do with a thief using these last two abilities is if you're being chased by the guards you can climb up to the second story of a building climb 20 feet up to a second story balcony you can use your hand crossbow to take a pot shot at the guard that's chasing you use your bonus action to unlock the door to the balcony and use your last 10 feet of movement to get into the building You'd still have 20 feet of movement, but yes, that is correct. No, because you're taking 20 feet to climb two stories up. 
two stories would be 20 feet, and since that only be half of your movement speed, because it's no, no longer 30 feet. extra movement. You, you have 30 feet of movement. Okay, yeah, you're correct. I'm sorry. I, yeah. was, I was doubling that. So yeah, and at that point, that would work. If you were in more of an urban setting, that'd be fine. For a whole archetype, when you look at the arcane trickster, okay, I can climb fast, or I get spells. Which do you want? Do you want to climb a wall? Do you want spells? I like spells. You do have spells at third level, but you have spells and then you have extra stuff that you can do with a mage hand. You specifically get mage hand and two other cantrips. But those cantrips, you can do a lot with some cantrips. You can. You really can. But these two abilities together, they really feel thematically appropriate for a thief. Thematically appropriate, yes. I will grant you that. And so we will probably leave these, but it just still feels... And my biggest complaint with the archetypes in general for Rogue, the Rogue as a class gets a ton of stuff. But the archetypes feel a little hollow to me. And I will um, concede that point to you, that the Rogue is one of those classes where they gave the base class so much stuff that they didn't leave room to really give the archetypes much to individualize themselves. And so this was the first where I was like, third level, okay, I can climb up a wall fast. It just... Doesn't sound exciting. If anything, I would do something more to make them feel more thievy, more stealth, more cunning, something more dirty hands type work. I don't know. Uh, like I said, this it looks good. It's right for the character. Second story work basically feels like diet soda to me. It's in the right container. It's got the right label. It looks the same. It mostly tastes the same, but there's just something missing. But it just feels a little hollow to me. And I will agree that you really have to have a certain type of campaign in order for this to shine. You really have to have an urban setting for this to really shine. The thief is not going to shine in a dungeon crawl. It's not going to shine in a setting where you're going to be out in the wilderness a lot. You're going to need something where you're going to be in a city or interacting with a lot of people in order for this to really work very well. But honestly, I can't think of any way to improve on this. I can't think of a way to improve it. I know it just doesn't sit 100% with me. Even this by itself, because it's small and it's a little thing, and you do get the fast hands at third level, which is great. But my problem with it comes immediately after. So you get this for your archetype at third level. You don't get anything else till level nine. Yeah, but that's for all the rogues. Right, I know, and that's what I'm saying, is the archetypes themselves just feel a little light to me. I mean, it's the same spread that you're... Actually, it's less of a spread than you get with the Bard, because the Bard has an 8-level spread between their class abilities. They get something at 3 and at 6, and then they don't get anything else until 14. Everything else is Bard base class built in. Gotcha. Between 6 and 14. So the Rogue actually does get more stuff than the Bard does. Now, at level 9, you do get Supreme Sneak, and this is a great skill. I like this one for the Thief a lot. Yeah, Supreme Sneak, you have advantage on stealth checks if you move no more than half your speed on the same turn. So if you're taking it slow, taking your time, you get advantage on the stealth check. I like this one. It feels right for the archetype. It feels right thematically. This is, you're slowly moving through the darkened hallways, avoiding that one board that's going to creak and give you away. You're tiptoeing, you've got the Scooby-Doo music playing behind you, this is perfect. I have no problem with Supreme Sneak at all. Neither do I. Going on to number 13, use magic device. You have learned enough about the workings of magic that you can improvise the use of items even when they're not intended for you. You ignore all class, race, and level requirements on the use of magic items. I'm not a fan of this as it is. This can be fun, because I read this and I immediately think of your sword you made for our orc. And so does this mean the rogue could use the uh, the sword? Technically, yeah. Yeah, that could be a lot of trouble. And that makes me giggle uncontrollably with the thought of that, so I kind of like it. Of course, the way that we've reworked the kobold, this particular rogue would not be able to do it because <laughs> that great sword is a heavy weapon. But still, just the idea of being able to do that sounds very mischievous to me, and I, I like that. I actually had a skill rework for this that I was going to call Magical Toolkit. You would gain the ability to cast the Identify spell as a ritual a number of times equal to your Intelligence modifier per long rest. And in addition, you would be able to cast 
spells with spell scrolls up to, I think, six-level spells. Can they not already with their used magic device? They should already be able to cast a spell. No, this is a skill that is going to be replacing used magic device. That I am proposing to replace used magic device. Because... Well, if they use an object item, uh, use an object action. But the way the spell scrolls work is you have to make, I think, an arcana check if you are not a caster of a class that could cast that scroll. Okay, so they'd be able to cast any scroll up to six. Would that work with wands as well? Um, I would have to double check on the rules for using wands. I don't know as if wands have that restriction anymore. Okay, because that was always the big thing, particularly with thieves that would steal the magic items, was wands in the hands of a rogue could be a nasty, nasty thing. A lot of fun. That's something that I can check, and if you do have to have caster levels to use a wand, I would be okay with adding that in to this. Okay. With those two caveats, with being able to use the scrolls and wands... Because it says you get to ignore class, race, and level requirements, there really aren't a whole lot of class or race requirements on items, and I haven't found any level requirements on any magic items in published 5e. I could be missing stuff. I don't think I've come across anything either, but I've not looked too terribly hard for a level requirement, I don't think. Because you're going to end up, you're going to have stuff like the robes of the magi that require a wizard or the holy avenger that requires a paladin, which the rogue would have to multi-class into something else to be able to use a great sword to use a holy avenger, but they would be able to use it without being a paladin. You don't want to give your rogue a holy avenger? (laughs) (laughs) Not particularly. (laughs) I mean, they wouldn't be able to sneak attack with it or anything. Yeah, with those caveats, I like. Basically, what I'm suggesting is trying to make this a little more usable, a little more useful, because you would gain the ability to identify stuff, which in and of itself would be great, because a thief needs to be able to look at the things that they're picking up and make sure that they have a value, make sure what their value is so that when they go to fence it, they know how much it's actually worth. If it's a magical item, knowing what that magical item does, is this thing cursed? That's something that the Identify spell will tell you. That would be something a thief would want to know. That is definitely something a thief would want to know. And by being able to cast it as a ritual, so, I mean, yeah, it's a 10-minute cast, and it's specifically cast it without material components. You just sit down and you spend 10 minutes looking over this item and you're able to discern everything about it. That's a good spell to have. I'm okay with that. Like I said, as as the limiter it is, you can use it a number of times equal to your intelligence modifier. That sounds fair. Because the higher your intelligence, the more you should be able to pick up about an item. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. And then our last thing... Yeah, Thieves' Reflexes at 17th level... You get to take two turns during the first round of any combat. You take your first turn on your normal initiative and your second turn at your initiative minus 10. Uh, You can't use this ability if you're surprised. I really like it. This is good. This gives you a a little bit of punch in the field, which we said that Thief isn't really a combat class, so they need a little extra. And it plays into what the Thief has been going through this whole time, especially with the Supreme Sneak. Their whole thing is going undetected. And so them being able to be undetected at the beginning of combat in combination with they're going to be stacking up into decks, so their initiative should be pretty high. So they'll be able to get a hit early on without everybody noticing them, or shit hits the fan and they have to get out. They have that heightened reaction speed that they get that whole turn that they can move their movement speed as their move, dash as an action, and then use their cunning action to dash as a bonus action and move 90 feet and just right. get out of dodge. Yeah, so again, this is good. This feels decent for the Thief archetype. I'm okay with this. This was probably one of our longer episodes. We've tinkered a bunch. We've debated a time, yeah. which is always really fun to do. Um, yeah, I've, I've had a whole lot of fun here, and I think that we've done pretty good. I think we have. And again, we'd love to hear from you guys. Have you guys message in. Tell us what you think. What you changed. You can explain all the reasons why Ian's wrong. Or all the reasons why James is wrong. But this rounds out the thief for our kobold. We've got a uh, rogue thief. Our next session we are going to be working again on our magical items and equipment for this character. 
Yeah, we're going to be going the same pattern that we did last time where we're each making three items. We're each making one item for each level that we're testing. So we're each making an item for third, an item for 11th, and an item for 20th level. And so, again, these will be things we can tinker with. Uh, We're going to have a lot of fun doing this. So uh, we hope to have you guys come back and visit us again next week. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please feel free to send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can also find us on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew and on Instagram and Facebook under Undercommon Taste. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Again, thank you for joining us and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.